0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, Life as Gift, Not Gain. Good morning, Sojourn. Uh, someone told me recently that when you're preparing to preach, when you're studying a text, you can expect to teach half of what you learn. As Christina was reading the passage this morning and I was reflecting on all that the Lord has taught me over the last couple of months, I've got to say, if that's true, it's bad news for your lunch plans. <laughs> if I'm still going at dinner time, just know that I've got about another 10 hours of material from this passage. But thanks be to God, I pray and I believe that he has something here for us this morning. He has a message for us this morning from this text, and I pray that we would have open hearts to hear it. My wife, Jessica, and I are parents to two young children, a four-year-old and a six-year-old. And if you've had experience parenting children of that age, you know our desire is to put before our children a vision of a life well-lived. And so... There's a refrain that can be heard in my house, most of the time once a day, a lot of times more than twice a day, and it's a song that goes a little bit something like this. Choose the better way. There's a better way of relating to each other. Choose it. They often can't see it, but we know it's our responsibility to show it to them. When you wake up on a Tuesday morning and you're screaming and crying because we're not having pizza and ice cream for breakfast, choose the better way. There's a better way to live. When you're screaming at your brother because he picked the pink marker first and now you don't want to color your page at all, choose a better way. There's a better way to live. When you're trying to get the lawn mowed as fast as you can, So you can play a round of golf before bedtime and it just won't start. And you throw a rake across the yard in anger. Choose the better way. There's a better way to live. In our passage today, the author of Ecclesiastes, commonly known to be Solomon, observes the ways that people relate to each other and their work. And he gives us a vision that says, there's a better way. Choose it. He sees a world filled with people exploiting each other, a world of isolation, full of individualism and loneliness, and he presents a different way. He's saying to us, there's a better way to live. Choose a better way of relating to each other and to your work. Choose to know and be known by each other. Choose to comfort each other. Choose to be dependent and dependable. I pray that the Lord would help us see the wisdom in this call and help us learn how to live it out. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to your scripture this morning, we know that we can trust you. You are revealing yourself to us through the words of the teacher. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to you in this passage, that you would open our eyes to a way of relating that is in contrast to the world around us, a way that declares... And magnifies your name. Lord, would you be with us? Amen. The book of Ecclesiastes recounts one man's lifelong quest for meaning in life. In chapters one and two, the teacher recalls his pursuit of meaning through pleasure, through knowledge, through the accumulation of things, and even through the exploration of wisdom. And it's all come up wanting. Last week, we saw the teacher turning his examination outward to the seasons and the systems of this world. And now in chapter 4, the teacher moves from the systems of the world to ways that people relate to each other and to their work. And what he sees is pretty bleak. He sees suffering and pain an imbalance of power and oppression. Behind every pursuit, he sees envy and striving He's driven to a deep lament and he repeats the response we've seen throughout this series. Vanity, futility, what a waste. In response to the heartbreaking ways people treat each other, he gives us a vision of right relating. I'm going to start this morning with that vision. I'm going to pull from the text ways that we can relate to each other that are beautiful and beneficial. And as we examine this vision my hope is that this body those of us here in this room would take it as an encouragement and an admonition friends we've come through a long long year and a half these have been months of isolation and loneliness and a lot of us are reconnecting now in the first for the first time in maybe a year and it's weird it's awkward sometimes we're caught in conversation and we don't know how to respond All of our interactions have been mediated through cloth or through technology. For many of us, interactions that we once cherished might not be there at all. Let us hear the encouragement to relate to one another, to be together, and to love each other in ways that are meaningful and fruitful. Let's see what this looks like in the text. I'm going to read verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This picture of good and godly relating is poetic, but it's also concrete. I'd like to highlight four aspects of godly relationships that we can see in this passage. We're called to cooperate. We're called to know each other, to comfort each other, and to depend on each other. Verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. The teacher starts this passage... This section of our passage today in the form of a proverb, encouraging us to work together. He doesn't deny the reality or the need for work, but instead of pointing to one person's ability, instead of pointing or praising prideful individualism or asking us to maximize our profits, he praises the benefit of cooperation. The language used clearly teaches us that two people working together increases the benefit for both parties. Throughout the scriptures, we're commended to work and to do so wisely. Here we see a wise way of working. It's cooperation. We might be tempted in our working, whether it's here in the church or outside in the world, to go it alone, to rely on our own power. I know I am. But let's read and heed this wisdom. Work together. There's a better return. It's important to note that in this proverb, the specific number two is not essential. The teacher's emphasis is on there being more than one individual. The language used here and repeated in the section can be read as one and another. So the emphasis there is one and someone else, not just two or three or more, but on the fact that there is wisdom in living and working, not as individuals, but as a unit, as a part of a community. Consider, brothers and sisters, how much more the work of the gospel in this neighborhood will grow and be blessed when we work together, when the vision set before us is not just borne by our pastors or our staff members. We already experience the wisdom of this Proverbs. We proclaim the wisdom here when we work together to do things like the Juneteenth cookout, when we steward this building well on cleanup days, and when we host VBS. By the grace of God and the willingness of his people, we had 31 volunteers show up last week. They did the good work of loving on the kids who came through the door. We welcomed and loved 53 kids. They were taught the gospel, they were fed meals, and they were given space to interact, to laugh and play. Now, the volunteers in the room might not want to do this, But imagine if one volunteer showed up for those 53 kids to cook 53 meals, to welcome 53 with open arms, to watch 53 in the gym down the alley. How much more is our work multiplied when we work together? Praise God for you volunteers. Good and godly relating to one another requires that we know each other Let's look at verse 10. If either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. In verses 10, 11, and 12, the teacher is most likely thinking of people traveling the open country roads of the day. Travelers moving from town to town at the time were engaged in a difficult and dangerous endeavor. They would often use narrow roads, hugging tight to steep cliffs. And many roads were lined with ravines and pits used to catch animals or unsuspecting travelers. Travelers often face the constant risk of falling to injury or worse. The wisdom here of traveling in pairs might seem like a given to us. It's an encouragement that we give our kids all the time. Don't go alone. Be together. But there's something I'd like for us to pay attention to here If either falls, his companion can lift him up. I can't help you up if I don't know that you've fallen. I have to know where you are, and you have to know where I am. The type of relating that the teacher describes requires that we are aware of each other, attentive to each other, that we know each other's needs, our hurts, and our failures but I think the type of knowing we're called to goes beyond just picking each other up out of a pit every once in a while. The travelers who would have been able to help each other in this scenario would first need to be headed in the same direction. Most likely, they would have made plans together. They would be at the same pace and be on the same road. I believe we're called to know when our brothers and sisters fall, but also to know who they are, to know the purpose of our traveling. But knowing each other well doesn't just produce meaningful friendships. It increases the effectiveness of our work. Paired with an intimate knowledge of each other, the fruit of our work is increased even more. If you'll allow me, I'd like to talk for a few minutes about draft horses. <laughs> draft horses are large, muscular animals. I mean, look at that guy, he's amazing. <laughs> They've been used throughout history for pulling great loads, moving heavy objects. They're massive horse breeds that have been developed to work. And they can work. A single draft horse can pull a load of up to 8,000 pounds. The strength of that is difficult for us to imagine, but let's just say this piano here weighs 1,000 pounds. Most concert grand pianos weigh around 1,000 pounds. So one draft horse alone could drag eight of these pianos through a field. So we could speculate what would happen if two draft horses were connected to a load of pianos. Maybe you trust your powers of deductive reasoning or you've done some kindergarten math problems recently and you think if one draft horse could dr- pull 8,000 pounds, then two could pull 16. Well, you'd be wrong. Two draft horses working together can't pull 16,000 pounds. They can pull up to 24,000 pounds. Imagine that. 24 pianos being dragged across a garden. Amazing. But that's not all. Listen to this. I love it if two horses that are pulling together have trained together, if they've worked together before, the limit of their power is not 24,000 pounds. They can pull up to 32,000 pounds. That's four times what one could do on his own. So if two draft horses spend time in the same fields, heat from the same troughs, drink from the same water, Their strength is magnified. They're in tandem with each other. They're in step, and every movement is maximized. Brothers and sisters, let's be draft horses. Let's know each other. Let's eat together, drink together. And when we work together, by serving a neighborhood, by serving the practical needs of this church, our work will be multiplied. The type of relating the teacher presents encourages us to comfort one another. Verse 11 Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? Travelers would often find themselves between destinations at the end of the day and would need to lie down on the side of the road for a night's sleep. Often they would have only a single shirt or cloak to keep them warm. And on cold desert nights, that just wouldn't be enough. So a traveler would have to find another and lie down together, share their cloaks, and keep warm. It's a fact that our bodies generate heat. Some of us generate more heat than others, but we're not torches, we're not radiators, I'm not a bonfire. I can't keep you warm if we're not close we see here the wisdom, the call to be close to each other, to be near each other when we're cold and when we're in need. Note also that the source of comfort here is another traveler. It's not an additional cloak. It's not a fire. It's another traveler on the road. The teacher wisely points out that when we're cold, when we're in need, what we need need to warm each other and comfort each other, we already have. Use it. The type of relating praised by the teacher requires cooperation, knowledge of each other, and encourages us to comfort each other, and it requires us to be willing to depend on each other. Verse 12, if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Away from the safety of towns and cities, travelers face the danger of robbers who roam the countryside looking for easy targets. An individual traveling alone would easily fall prey, but two people could defend themselves. But to defend one another in a scenario like this, you'd have to depend on each other. Again, if Nick and I are traveling the road and someone comes to take what we have, but we're not depending on each other, if we're not aware of each other, then our effectiveness is cut and we'd be just as susceptible as if we were alone. One person alone might not even be able to see danger. I might not be able to recognize how patterns of thinking and speaking in my life could lead me to endanger my witness or my faith. But if I'm in a community group of brothers and sisters who are willing to defend me, they can speak up and help me avoid downfall. Similarly here, the picture of a three-stranded cord is a picture of individuals depending on each other for strength. Again, we've heard these proverbs throughout our lives, most likely, so this might seem like a given, but the reason is interesting. In a rope made of three cords twisted together, each one of the three parts is constantly in contact with the other two. Any strain on the cords is borne more easily because the stress pulls the strands closer together and their bond becomes tighter. Brothers and sisters, we too are travelers, and the dangers are many. Throughout the scriptures, the people of God are called sojourners, travelers in a land that is not our home. Let's rely on each other. Let's depend on each other, comfort each other, and be close to one another. It's not just a good way to live. It's part of the work of the church. It's a witness to the world of the goodness and the pleasure of our God. Jesus himself praised this. In John 17, he prays that the unity of believers would glorify the love of the Father. He prayed that his disciples would be unified in community just as he and the Father are one. He said, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and you loved them just as you loved me. When we live and relate together in these ways, we reflect back to God and to the world, the unity and love of our Father. In all of this comfort, knowledge of each other, depending on each other, the teacher is saying, this is the way. The better way to relate to each other, choose it. But why? Why is this the better way? Why is this kind of community important for our time? Because the way of the world is toward individualism and toward isolation. That's clear in the preceding verses. Read verse one through three with me. Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. So I commended the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. The teacher looks at the ways that people treat each other, and his heart sinks. Oppression reigns. There's an imbalance of power, and his heart is drawn to the isolated, the oppressed. Twice, he tells us that they have no comforter. This way of humans relating to each other, of exploiting one another for power and gain, drives him to write what is perhaps one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. He's so disgusted and so broken by the way that people treat each other. He says, we're better off dead than to see it. I'd rather never to have been born than to view the way that people treat each other. Our faith requires us to see the world as it is. The Christian doesn't have the option of looking away from the harsh realities of the world. When we proclaim the goodness of Jesus our Savior, we are also acknowledging our need for saving. If you don't see the brokenness in this world, though, If you don't feel it on this level, be encouraged. There's grace. We're not all called to go looking for oppression under every rock and behind every door, but wisdom requires reality. The pursuit of wisdom requires that we see the world as it is, because the pursuit of wisdom is the pursuit of living rightly in a specific context. If we pursue wisdom, but we're unwilling to see the world as it is, what we pursue is a delusion. Let's not turn away from the world when we see brokenness, when we see oppression, but let us also cling to and proclaim the hope of a better way, both inside these walls and out. Before I move on from these verses, I hope that you hear me. I hope that you hear the writer here. Are you overwhelmed by brokenness? Are you weary? Do you view injustice and you're devastated? Do you feel like you're stuck in lament, sadness at the sight of things? If that's where you are, there's a home for you here. This, what we're reading today, is the word of God. God. And in response to suffering, we see the same kind of sadness that we experience today. Our Father is with you. He is close to you. He's on the side of the oppressed. He bends His ear toward you, and He is for you. We serve a God who delights in community. When humans exploit and isolate each other, we stand against the very nature of God. Sometimes, though, the forces of isolation are not from without ourselves, not from the systems of the world, but they come from within. It's a self-isolation that we pursue. Let's read verses 4 through 8. I saw that all labor and all skill for work, skill for, skillful work apologies, is due to one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest... Then two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. Again I saw futility under the sun. There is a picture without a there is a person without a companion, without even a son or a brother. And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with his riches. Who am I struggling for? He asks, and depriving myself of good things. This too is futile and a miserable task. The teacher turns his magnifying glass to the individual here. He sees people driven by envy to work and driven by the weight of work to foolish resignation. Both of these responses, a vain striving and sloth, result in us moving away from each other. Envy changes our view of other people, it places the emphasis on someone else's things and not who they are as image bearers of Christ. When we envy, we objectify. And when we objectify, we isolate. When we see our lives not as a gift, but as a mean of, means of gain, the result is isolation. Verses 7 and 8 there's a man devoted to gain. There's no end to his desire to accumulate things. The result of his work is more work. And the result of his accumulation of wealth is loneliness, meaninglessness, a vapor. Now, isolation was probably not his aim, nor is it ours. Our devotion to work may have started with right or right-feeling desires, but when we replace those good desires with envy or gain for the sake of gain, the fruit of our labor is bitter to the taste. In the middle of this passage, the teacher shows us a better way of relating to our work He says it's better to have one handful of tranquility, with peace, one hand working, than to sit back and do nothing or to be totally consumed by your t- toil. When we are ruled by our work, by our striving, it becomes all consuming. And when work is all consuming, it's all we have. It blocks out space for others and for the intentionality and the relationships that God has given us. All we have is vanity, striving for the wind. But a right relationship to work, a relationship to work that allows us space for rest, is tied to a right relating to each other. When we use our work as a gift and not for the pursuit of gain, when we approach it with the wisdom that we see here, we have the space to relate to each other intentionally and rightly. When we see the myth of individualism, Rampant greed, envy, vain driving in our culture, let us choose a different way. Let us lift up a banner that says our God is a God of community and not of profit, not of greed, not of envy. What are some ways that we can live out this call to relate to each other in good and godly ways? We can be present we can be a participant. We can get to know each other. I mentioned earlier that my wife and I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old, three-year-old, I'm sorry. (laughs) We have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, and a parent might know this joy well, but there's nothing that brings a smile to our face quicker than to hear their conversations from another room, to see them growing in their relationship with each other conversing with each other. It's such a beautiful sight. Last week I noticed after we concluded the service, this space was immediately filled with sound. Sound of laughter, sound of conversation, sound of brothers and sisters getting to know each other. How beautiful that must sound to the Father when his brothers and sisters in the place where they worship are turned toward each other, present to each other, Getting to know each other, press into that. When you're here, be present. Get to know each other, love on each other. We can be a participant in the work of the church and the practical needs. We can be ready and willing to volunteer when there's need. I'm so thankful that the testimony of this church is people who respond when they're asked to volunteer. And you can join a community group. When our groups relaunch this fall, I encourage you to find a group It's where we work out this way of relating to each other on a weekly basis. As I close, I understand well that there might be some objections to the encouragements that I've given you today. Maybe there's some uneasiness here. Maybe you've experienced the danger in proximity to other people. Maybe the isolation that the teacher sees as what you feel Maybe you've allowed yourself to get close to others before and it's ended in hurt and pain. I'm not naive. We don't have to look far for wolves. But the beauty in the community of believers pursuing each other, pursuing God together, it endures. It is strong and will go on for centuries until he comes again. Maybe you hear my calls and encouragement to know and be fully known, and your response is, I don't want that. I don't want to be fully known by the person sitting next to me. Maybe the source of that is shame or fear. Can I encourage you? You already are fully known, and you are fully loved. Let me say that again. You are fully known in your deepest parts when your motivation for work doesn't match up with what we see here. You are fully known and you are fully loved. I'm encouraged by a quote from Tim Keller's book on marriage To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Let's be known and fully known and love each other. Believers, let's live in that reality. Let's live our lives as gift, not as gain, a gift to be given to others. Let's live from the knowledge that God knows us and he loves us, and we know this because Christ gave himself up for us while we were yet sinners. If you're here and you're not a believer, if you don't know what it's like to be part of the family of God, to be part of this beautiful community, maybe you're living in the brokenness of this world and you don't have hope, For another way, can I encourage you? You are fully known by the God who hung the stars, by the God that created all that we see and all that we are. You are known and you are loved. If you'd like to talk with me or Pastor James or Pastor Nick about what that means, what it means to live in that reality, feel free to find us after the service. Would you pray with me? I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr. Lead Pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.